Hi, I'm Louise Windmill, a senior partner at Portland. Today I'm joined by Emma Stewart, MBE, the co-founder of TimeWise, a flexible working consultancy that aims to tackle the lack of quality part-time jobs and drive the flexible conversation forwards. Though businesses have had to swiftly embrace working from home over the last year, many still have a long way to go in terms of establishing a healthy, flexible working practice. In this episode, we'll look at how work is being redesigned for the future and how we can close the gap between the remote working procedure that was thrust upon us by the pandemic and a fair and effective system. This is To The Point. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. As you know, I've been a huge fan of TimeWise and your campaign for some time, so I'm delighted that you can join us on the show. Now, when this episode goes out, it will have been a year since the UK first went into lockdown and Boris instructed us to work from home where possible. The news forced businesses everywhere, including those who'd previously been slow to embrace flexible working, to adapt and at breakneck speed. Zoom and Teams calls suddenly became the primary way to get business done. Emma, as someone who's long campaigned for businesses to adopt more flexible working practices, I'm fascinated to get your take on what's happened over the last year. Has it been a successful year in terms of progress on flexible working? And do you think the working world has fundamentally changed? Or have we merely found a temporary sticking blaster? (laughs) Hi, Louise. Lovely to be here. Um, I think what we have seen over the last year is a whole load of myths busted about why flexible working doesn't work. So, I mean, we've had absolutely unprecedented change. It's interesting, you know, at TimeWise, we've been campaigning for a better flexible jobs market for 15 years. In some respect, more has changed in the last year than the 14 preceding. In some respects, actually not. So, so I think we've seen, we've seen the myths and the assumptions about flexible working not being able to work busted. I think we've seen more roles than ever before being able to be done flexibly. And we've all had to fundamentally rethink at scale how we work. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? But I think (laughs) what we need to remember is that we've been working remotely and that's just one form of flexible working. And there are some risks with what we've seen. And, And what we've seen hasn't been something that we've all chosen to do it's and and businesses have chosen to it's been forced on them and with that comes consequences so we have seen blurred lines and edges for people working at home with everything else all around them we've seen lots of what we would call digital presenteeism people working very long hours some people working very long hours other people have lost their jobs so you know it's not been the same experience for everybody and we've learned a lot but if we want to move forward and build a recovery and keep hold of the good things, then we need to sort of bridge the gap between what we've been trying to do and where we need to go next. Mm. And that means a much more thoughtful approach to how we make flexible working work at a kind of systemic level. You mentioned there that what we've mastered really in the last year is the ability to work remotely. So what, when you're talking about flexible working, what do you really mean? What is flexibility? So fundamentally, it's about having some kind of autonomy and control over how, when and where you work. And those three axes are really important. Uh, So at TimeWise, we talk about it, how much you work, which is do you work part time? Do you work in a job share, which is different to the the norm sort of full time? When you work, having choice and some autonomy over the times of day you work. And that's particularly important when it comes to people in rostered and shift based roles. 
and then where you work, which is what we've all been doing. We've all been working in different locations, mainly from home. Yeah, I have to say that the flexibility and freedom um, that has come from not having to do the commute each day has been a massive benefit to me personally over the last year. You know, it's given me time back either to see the children, do the school run, get some exercise in. Uh, so from my perspective, you know, huge progress made there. But what are the other areas of flexible working where we've really made gains in this last year? And, you know, is there any going back from here? Are we likely to revert to type or do you think we've made a fundamental change in the way we think about work? I think we should be looking forward. And I think the things that we have learned that are quite fundamental are that we can trust people to work when we don't necessarily see them. So the issues around sort of trust and performance and some of those stigmas associated with flexible working, I think, have been disproved. But if we are going to kind of look forward and retain this, then we shouldn't underestimate the kind of cultural behavioural shift that we need to retain in order to carry on enabling people to work differently. And also, let's face it, you know, when we look at the recovery and we look at kind of moving forward, we need to be thinking about enabling people to have that element of control, but also a range of different ways of working. So just 100% remote working doesn't suit everybody. Uh, We've all had very different experiences of it, um, ranging from people having to homeschool through to more junior colleagues having to three of them sharing an ironing board for a desk. Um, so, So being able to have a blend of office and home in terms of that choice around location, I think is going to matter going forward. And we also need to make sure that we remind business leaders of the sheer demand for flexibility because I think that's the other thing that has been a real positive from this experience is I mean at TimeWise we've known for years we've done lots of research into this just how important flexibility is for people but what this pandemic has shown through report after report after report it's shown business leaders that if they want to retain and also attract great talent diverse talent then one of the most important things you can give people is that element of flexible working Mm. uh, because it's just so huge. And actually business leaders who do not retain that will risk losing good people, even Mm. in in the the market we're in at the moment. Um, And they won't attract the best because, you know, it's there, it's landed. And do you think people will have more confidence as a result of this to ask for flexible working? Like how much of a, a stigma was there before? And, you know, is that an area which we've advanced in? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be the really tricky one. So we know historically from all the research that we've done with candidates on our job site and and elsewhere that it is really hard to ask for flexibility, whether you're in a job or whether you are looking to apply for a job. It's even harder when you look to apply for a job. And I think that the culture we had before this pandemic was very much what we call a request response sort of model, where the assumption around flexible working was that you would kind of do a job in the way it was designed, normally full time, unless you wanted to ask for flexible working. And then the onus was very much on the individual. So to request, and then the business would respond. And that's quite reactive. And often people don't ask, because we also know that structurally, there are risks with asking. If you ask at an interview, you might not get the job, Mm. if it's not advertised. If you ask uh, at a performance review or when you're looking to sort of progress in work, you might get it, but then you might get overlooked for promotion. Mm. So, you know, having flexibility is one thing, making sure it doesn't 
prohibit your ability to progress in work or have that kind of job mobility that everybody else has is another issue. So what we need to do is shift and we need to see a shift in behaviour where businesses start to lean in more and they start to be more proactive and take the responsibility to say we are open to this and this is how it could work here for you so that the onus isn't always on the individual. And I think if we can see that shift, it's subtle but it's hugely significant um, for people so that you don't feel it's always up to you to have to be the one to bring up the conversation. It's funny you say that. It's one of the things that we've looked at at Portland recently and as part of our uh, performance management systems now, we ask people a series of questions and do their self-appraisal and actually one of the questions in there is, what are your flexible working needs? I have to say, I, I only anecdotally from the people I manage, I can see who fills that in, but it'd be interesting to see how many people proffer a review on that. <laughs> but that's good to know. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier and you sort of touched on some of the challenges of the last year. I'm interested to dig a bit deeper into this. Where have we uncovered new challenges, perhaps, in the workplace from a flexibility perspective? I think the biggest challenge, I mean, there's been a huge obvious challenge for many people in that they've lost their jobs. And actually, we know that women have disproportionately fallen out of work more than men. And we also know that people in frontline industries who haven't been able to take a laptop and go home and work have actually had their industries decimated. And there is a pattern there linked to lower paid, part-time often frontline workers. So I think what we've seen that's been a real concern is a kind of growing inequality when it comes to flexible working. We sort of talk about it at times as the flex haves and have nots. You know, if you are able in an office role to work remotely or in a hybrid way, that's great. But actually what we really need to be thinking about are, the, are those millions of frontline workers um, and trying to explore how we can make sure that we offer flexibility in every role. And it may not be a location-based flexibility in terms of where, but it might be the when. It might be, mm -hmm. can we give you a bit more input into your shift patterns um, and the times of the day that you work and advance notice into when you're going to be working? And there are opportunities to do that. So I think, you know, if we want to kind of come out the other side of this with a fairer approach, then we need to be thinking really inclusively. And that comes down to sort of taking a sexual approach or it's looking at different businesses and making sure that, you know, what we offer to our senior managers who can work remotely is the same. Well, it won't be the same, but we offer some form of flexibility to them in the same way that we might consider some form of flexibility to, say, the receptionist or the customer service team. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, if we don't do that, we'll have a problem. The other thing I would say that we also need to be really mindful of is part-time. So we also know that remote working has exploded, but actually there has been much shift in part-time working. And you know, if we care about well-being, which is much higher on the agenda of businesses now, and we think about people's work-life balance and all of the issues we've seen in terms of how to balance work and care and health, we need to be more actively encouraging senior roles, better quality roles to be available on a part-time basis as well as on a, on a remote basis. That was actually going to be one of my later questions, but let's jump into it now. You have a, a jobs board where I know that you post all sorts of different flexible and part-time jobs. I would have thought the cynic in me says that there will be some businesses out there right now which have recognised that working from home works and people can be trusted and can deliver and that perhaps people are looking for more more flexibility and perhaps the business might be able to save themselves some costs by actually you know embracing and, and having more part-time jobs on offer. Have you seen a change in appetite for, for businesses to offer part-time work? 
So on our job site, I mean, our job site reflects the market generally, and we run our index every year that looks at the volume of vacancies that are open to flex at the point of hire. I would say that the employers who advertise on our job site are probably a bit ahead of the curve because they're advertising directly to a flexible Mm. workforce, and so they're open to it. But at a national level, when we track the state of vacancies, it's been actually quite disappointing to see that even though we spent the whole year (laughs) working flexibly, the ratio of vacancies that reference the ability for people to work either flexibly or part-time has only really risen slightly. So pre-pandemic, it used to be around about 15%. It's now at 22 which is quite concerning because that still means eight out of 10 Mm. job vacancies say nothing about the opportunity to work flexibly. Now, you could argue that employers assume that people will ask. Revert to my Mm -hmm. earlier point, people don't always feel they can. Uh, But also because they're not proactively thinking about it, sometimes it's just they don't think to say so. So I think we need to be encouraging businesses and businesses we work with already are recognising they need to be talking about flex from day one because... That's what stops people moving. You know, you you get a job, you negotiate three, four days a week or your working pattern, then you decide you want to move either up in your organisation or out. You look around the jobs market, there's not that many good quality flex or part-time jobs to apply for. And you worry that you won't be able to take that hard-earned flexibility negotiated with you. So that's why many people stay put. Mm -hmm. Flexible workers don't progress. It's kind of one of the main reasons why we have a gender pay gap. Yeah. Um, So I, I hope it will shift and we will start to think differently about flex. And also to your point about part-time, it's all about the job design. So there is a danger that businesses offer three days a week instead of five to save money. I mean, I'd flip that and argue that's a benefit to small businesses who are trying to grow because there's lots of fantastic people who want Mm -hmm. to work three days a week. The important thing is that we don't sort of redesign existing jobs that are five days a week and assume they can be done in three and then not work out where the other two days go. (laughs) Because um, the risk is we end up with, which we know is often the case, lots of people taking on a part-time job and actually working more hours than they're paid for. So that's just about equipping managers with the the understanding and the skills and having those conversations with individuals as well about, okay, if we're changing the hours, then what happens to that work? Does it not happen, that work? Does it go to somebody else in the team if we talk to them about it? Do we create a job share or do we just find a more efficient way to make the workflow? Mm. But those are the kind of conversations we need to be having all the time to to get this right. You mentioned there it's sometimes easier, obviously, to to have a conversation about flexible working when you're already in a job. Do you have any tips for our listeners today, people that might be thinking about moving jobs, about when in the process do you talk about your need for flexibility? Do you go from the get-go, these are my non-negotiables, or do you wait a bit further down the line, get the buy-in, get the job, and then <laughs> and then land them with the, and this is, by the way, how I want to ideally work? That's the million dollar question. I mean, we sort of, we talk about it a bit like it's a game of chicken, you know, exactly what you said. Do you put it in your job application? Do you wait until you're in the lift about to walk into the interview and ask the PA or do you hit them with it? Um, I think the thing to do is, as with every job, is to lead on your capabilities and your potential and your skills. And we would always urge that you do that first, but do your due diligence on the company you're applying for. So if it's a new company, obviously the first thing to do is to check if they are open to this um, on their careers pages. If there's no reference to it, then look on Glassdoor, look elsewhere, try and do some research to see if there's going to be the kind of culture that will be open to, to flexibility. And then 
we would always urge sell yourself get them to really like you and then you should bring it up um but it's a negotiation in the same way that it's a negotiation on salary and one thing we mustn't do and we've we've advised many many candidates over the years on this is is to sort of ask for it as as if it's something that you need permission to do and that it's a I'm sorry, but I need to work part-time. Actually, if you're good at your job and you come with a solution as to how you can make it work, then it should be a really positive conversation. And also be really clear about how you will do it and not why you need it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also really important because often, you know, if an employer is concerned as to whether a job can be done differently, somebody who's done that job in an organisation elsewhere and worked and made it work flexibly is probably the best person to, to tell them how but don't always just lead on the why. Um, And then the last thing I would say is there's an element of need to be flexible with your flexibility a bit as well. So if you need a certain number of hours or if you're thinking about a certain day off, you may not get exactly what you want. Mm -hmm. And just be clear beforehand when you go, before you go into that negotiation, what's most important to you. Is it having one day off a week? In which case, does it matter which day? Because things that employers worry about is what we call the floodgates. Everyone asks for Friday off. (laughs) Mm. so you know you may not get Friday off but you may get Monday or Wednesday off is that okay yeah good advice (laughs) I want to talk to you a bit now about you know where do we go from here the vaccination program appears to be going great guns in the UK anyway I think nearly 50% of the adult population have now received their first dose and things are starting to gradually open up schools are back thank goodness (laughs) shops are gradually reopening um, and businesses are starting to welcome colleagues back into offices I know that some companies, uh, I think Salesforce, Microsoft, quite good examples, have already come out saying that colleagues can work from home permanently if they so desire, while others, Portland included, are looking more at sort of hybrid models of work. See, having the freedom and flexibility to choose where you work is obviously only one aspect of flexible working, as we spoke about earlier. So in this new world, how should companies be thinking about flexibility and what should they be considering in terms of designing flexible or hybrid working policies? So, I mean, hybrid is the word of the moment. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I mean, it's, I think the first thing is don't rush because this is unprecedented and this is at a scale that many firms will not have experienced before. Uh, So what we would urge is the first thing really to do would be just to set up a team of people to, to look at this because this isn't like a sort of let's refresh our flexible working policy as part of our DNI strategy. This is much, much bigger than that. So we would urge firms to put some people on this. How are we going to do hybrid? How are we going to make this work at scale? Uh, and then it's really about trying to think through what the principles are that you want to work to, as opposed to we would urge not to try and sort of come up with a a new rule of we all want to be in the office three days a week and work from home two days a week. So try and think through what what those principles are. I mean, we do we offer loads of support and training at Timeways <laughs> on this, but um, the work that we we require or we support firms to do is to say what are what are your guiding principles as a starting point? What's your clear vision? Do you want to be home first or office first? Do you want to define this at a task and team level, or do you want to be led by what individuals want? Are you are you happy to set a kind of key framework? around your kind of this is how we think it should work and then devolve it to teams to work out how they do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about kind of creating that sort of initial framework. It's about listening to people because often people have great ideas. And then it's got to be about making sure that managers are equipped 
to manage dispersed and hybrid teams. So all the things we've talked about, you know, in relation to kind of what we would call job design, you know, it's important to train managers in in understanding how to manage flex and job design. And I think, you know, the other thing to really bear in mind is something we would kind of call hybrid bias. So think about how to be inclusive, how to make sure that communication flows operate, how to make sure that if people are working at home, they're not going to miss out on opportunities because the meat of the of the meeting is the last five minutes when everyone's turned off their camera and they're having a chat at the water cooler. So, so there's a number of considerations. It's not easy, um, but trust your teams, come up with a framework, get them to trial different things and then review, evolve, review, evolve, because what you start with may not be where you end up. But mm. as a sort of reassuring thought, everybody is grappling with this and no one has the answers right now. Mm. Well, it's good advice, I think, starting with the the framework and how does a business want to work and what are the guardrails, if you like? Because I think certainly a lot of the conversations I'm hearing at the moment is, is it two days? Is it three days? Uh, and actually mm. it doesn't sound like that's where you should be starting at all. <laughs> um, no. And obviously, you know, flexibility and and how successful a business is in delivering that to a large extent comes down to the culture yeah. how do you as a business foster a more flexible culture and I'm particularly thinking here about the businesses that have perhaps been a bit slow to embrace flexible working in the past how do you take something like that on so having senior people role modeling the behaviors is really important so being able to and there will be people <laughs> I mean particularly now after the pandemic you know we've all one of the things that this has done is sort of humanized and democratise flexible working. It's not just a thing for mums anymore. Everyone's had to do it. So for those organisations that want to keep going with this and not risk going back to the way things were, and there are quite a few of those, then I would say find the examples of people who have been making it work really effectively, whether it's people who've been working part-time, people working remotely, and just showcase how they make it work. Because then that starts to gently dissipate and shift those kind of behaviours and assumptions around cultural norms. So so there's something really powerful about that leadership vision and role modelling behaviour that needs to happen. If the challenge is that the leadership aren't there, then it's about making your leadership team aware of the latent demand and the need and the, the burning platform effectively that exists for people who want to retain some form of flexibility. And that doesn't have to mean jumping from all at home to all back in the office. As we talked about, it could be a hybrid blend. But it's about just highlighting through engagement surveys and and conversations what people want and need because the world has changed. And then And then fundamentally, if you want to shift the culture, it's about having those proactive conversations. So just making flexible working or how you work part of everything, making it part of performance reviews as you do, you know, making sure that it's part of a brand positioning piece and making it feel normal. And that's, you know, once it starts to feel normal, that's the way you start to change cultural behaviours, but it takes time. There's a slight risk that the naysayers will have used the pandemic to say, well, clearly flexible working is a bit of a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, you know, let's just remember this hasn't been the best experience of flexible working, but there have been some amazing learnings that have come out of it so I just mm. think it's about telling those stories and and highlighting to business leaders we can't really afford not to change we have to the world's changed around us yeah 
You So you mentioned earlier, you know, a possible pitfall is in thinking about the sort of design of flexible working policies going forward would be to start with, you know, number of days, for example, in the office. What other pitfalls do you see businesses who are now thinking about this falling into? Um, I think there is a there's probably a challenge around consistency and fairness and a challenge around sort of inclusion that is going to be important. And that's just really because with everybody working flexibly, you sort of overlay that to the biases and the behaviours that exist in businesses around sort of preference and affinity bias. You know, if you're both in the office, you will often have a conversation that excludes other people. So I think I think from an inclusion perspective, we've got to be really careful that just because people work in different ways, they're still part of conversations. And that means communicating more. And that means changing the way we communicate. We've got to be really careful and make sure that we have fair and consistent approaches. And also recognising that a fair approach may not mean a fair outcome. So there could be flexibility in every role, but it won't be the same. Uh, in fact, we've just been doing some work with a big construction firm and that's become one of their strap lines, which is we see everybody should have flexibility, but it won't be the same for you all, but we're open to it. So so it's about consistency, about fairness, it's about inclusion. And it's about not being afraid, I think, to test and pilot different ways of doing this. There are all kinds of sort of consequences, particularly when we think about the opportunity for people to relocate, you know, businesses of particularly global firms of people moving all over the world. What does that mean for tax implications, for remuneration implications? There's all sorts of things to think about. But just I think we would urge businesses who are heading into this to recognise that flexible working isn't, we're not on day one. You know, we've been doing this for many years. We just haven't done it as much. Yeah. And you, you mentioned one example there of a construction company, but I'm interested to know, are there other companies or sectors or even countries that are particularly good at flexible working that they you think, yeah, they've got it right, that's it? Um, from a sector perspective, I think the NHS is doing a huge amount to lean into this. Uh, the People Plan that came out recently has flexibility as a really important tenant. Uh, we've done quite a lot of work in the NHS already, and I think it's really interesting to see how they are looking to build role models, looking to build that capability and looking to do things differently and really importantly for frontline teams as well. Because actually sometimes, you know, if you're a nurse, flexible working is a dirty word. What you want is predictability. You want to know when you're working. So it's about interpreting that in different ways. Um, I think every sector has a slightly sort of different challenge. I think where we have legitimate operational constraints in terms of people and, and particular roles, it is more challenging. And that's where we need to test and pilot different approaches. So, again, thinking about areas beyond the NHS, like construction, like social care, you know, we've still got some real hurdles to get through. But what does good look like? The Scandinavian countries are good at this. Uh, why are they good at this? Because they've been investing in it for decades and they have driven legislative change as well as cultural change and they have a different perspective and outlook and value on the balance of work and family life and they also have a very in the main non-gendered approach to this which is is really important you know and we would always urge organizations to think about a sort of reason neutral approach when it comes to to flexible working you know yes parents need it yes women need it Yes, young people want to just have control over how they work. Yes, older people want to have phased retirements. You know, 
yes, we need to balance our health with our work. So I think if we look to Scandinavian countries, there's a lot of good lessons, but it's a combination of things that have made that work. Mm. So interesting on that the sort of international point. Is there, I think it's one of the challenges I think is, you know, what does good look like? So how do you, how do you measure as a business whether or not you're, you're doing well in this? Is there merit in having some kind of international standard benchmark or some kind of flexible reporting requirement for businesses? I don't know if that's something you've thought of or whether or not you're in favour of it. I think that benchmarking firms and using data to help drive improvement can be really effective. I think the challenge with benchmarking or collecting data is, well, do you do something with it? (laughs) Mm. So I, I think we've got to... There are some, I mean, there are a number of standards in the UK and Matthew Taylor, while he was advising Theresa May on the good work sort of recommendations, came up with a few and other organisations have. And I think it is really important to set standards, but businesses have then got to follow through on that and they've got to be incentivised to follow through on that. They've got to have a really strong business reason to do that. Often it is competitive edge, but again, it comes back down to if you have a good approach to flex, then you will attract and retain great people. But I think the other thing we need to be mindful of, if we are trying to standardise how we do this, then we also have to think about what the other end of the spectrum looks like, which is if people don't adhere to good standards, what happens then? Do we do we stimulate sort of enforcement measures? And at the bottom end of the labour market, I mean, um, as we're doing this podcast, Uber have just um, had a, <laughs> a court case result. You know, when flexibility is all one way, when it comes to sort of gig economy jobs... You know, what happens if it goes wrong? Where's the enforcement agency? Where are the the support measures in place for workers? And I think that's something we need to think, certainly in this country, really seriously about, because it's one thing saying to people, we we have a great standard and we're really good at flex. It's another thing, if your lived experience is different to that, what do you do about it as an individual Mm -hmm. worker and an individual employee? I think the gender pay gap reporting duty is really important, and that has a very direct association with flexibility. But we've got some fantastic businesses in this country who are doing great things already. And what we need to do is to champion those. Um, So it's it's a balance of championing great work and where organisations are doing it well. So your laggards can see what your vanguards are doing and can learn from them. But making sure that we don't leave the laggards on their own to do things not great. You mentioned their gender pay gap reporting. I think businesses got something of an alibi. I'm going to call it that anyway. Last year, and they didn't have to report. And I think when this goes out, it was a it was going to be about the time of the next gender pay gap report. Um, I see now that's been pushed back by I think six or so months. What are you expecting to see from this year's report? Mixed picture. All of the wider kind of labour market data tells us that there's a risk that that gender parity is going backwards, not forwards. We've seen a lot of women falling out of work. We've seen a lot of women struggle just through the intense period of this pandemic and the fact that they are taking on disproportionate amount of homeschooling and care. Men are doing more, but women are doing more than men. Mm. So I I think the firms that have taken the gender pay gap reporting duty seriously are the firms that were good at flexible working as well before the pandemic and many who we work with. And I would expect that they will be fine and they will have shown progress. I think the risk, and again, it goes back to that sort of two-tier, is that those who hadn't quite engaged with this agenda, I'm I'm not sure will have made much progress. It'll be really interesting to see the results. As always, 
you know, we talk about the gender pay gap as the gender progression gap. It's all about the extent to which women are able to progress and also have some form of flexibility in their progression. It would be really interesting to see fundamentally what action plans look like. Because at the end of the day, if you have a gender pay gap, again, it comes back to what you're going to do about it. And I would hope that in the action plans, we see far more on considering how we design jobs and how we embrace flexibility and how we do that in an inclusive way, because we have such a fantastic opportunity to do that right now. That's what I hope to see is whatever the data tells us, I hope that more action plans will talk about flexible working as being a good solution. You've had all sorts of great tips over the last half hour or so, but if there's you know one thing that businesses should really be thinking about now as they grapple with the future, what is that one thing? How do you get this right? Where do you start? Well, we would ask that businesses are able to consider flexible working at the point of hire. Because I think at a societal level, if there's one thing we would like to see is the change in the employment market shift into the recruitment market. Because we still only have, as I said, 22% of job vacancies referencing flexibility when we've been through a year of everybody working differently. And I think so many broader societal issues will be helped as well as businesses benefiting Mm. if more businesses proactively think, would we be open to flexible working for a candidate, for someone we've never met before, as much as we would be for the people that we know and trust who work in our organisations? And if they are, then, then we would really want them to say so on job ads. Because I think if we can have one thing that comes out of this is we have a fairer, flexible jobs market, and that means women and men no longer get trapped in low-paid part-time jobs, having to kind of compromise between pay and flexibility. And we have better job mobility for flexible workers. So I, you know, and businesses will benefit. Businesses will be able to attract the diverse talent pool they want and they will keep hold of them hopefully as well. Fab, well, my final question and something we ask all of our guests on the show is around finding clarity. So we're obviously in a really busy, noisy world. So I'm interested to know, where do you go or what do you do when you need space to think or to try and find clarity on some kind of issue or topic? (laughs) I get on my bike. And that's one thing I miss from working at home is, you know, I used to cycle into work. So I've got about a 10 hour, 10, 10 hour, 10, 10 mile cycle ride. (laughs) Uh, to and from and I live in Crystal Palace in South East London so we have big hills yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so I miss that so what I but I the best thing for me is on a Sunday morning getting on my bike as long as the weather's right and just going and cycling and getting space and a horizon and some green things to look at and that helps me to think um, and I think you know that sort of deep thought deep space and distance from everybody, from work, from the kids, from the husband, from yeah. the house, from the cleaning, the laundry, just being on my bike. That's what I do. Good. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today and for sharing all of your gems of wisdom and uh, some great tips and, and good things for businesses to, to think about as we look forward. And I, I hope that, you know, the year has taught us an awful lot and that we really do use this as a moment to, to change and to grow and, and to be better at this stuff. Mm. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So do I. Thanks, Louise. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www 
portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.